Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala, Deputy Personal Finance Editor Investors Chronicle, and Ben Ritchie, Manager of Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust. Before we get going, I would like to invite anyone who wants their own financial situation assessing to take part in the Investors Chronicle Portfolio Clinic. If you're interested, email portfolio.clinic at ft.com or leonora.walters at ft.com. The Needham Income Growth Investment Trust, as its name implies, aims to grow its income as well as its capital. The Trust mainly does this by investing in the UK equities market, historically one of the best markets in which to find good sources of equity income. But Ben, you've been implementing a strategy change to Dunedin income growth, moving it away from higher yielding, low growth companies. Why did you decide to do this? Well, thanks very much, Lenore, for the the introduction. Um, It kind of goes back about three or four years. So if you look at the performance of the trust back in sort of 2014, 2015, and, and actually for a number of years before that, uh, we lagged our competitors quite significantly. And then in, in 2015, we had a really tough year against the market. Uh, and the real driver for that was that we didn't have a lot of uh, allocation towards mid and small cap companies. Uh, we had a very high yield and we had a lot of investment in, in, in high yielding companies, which are great for paying a dividend, but not so good for not so good for growing. Uh, and, and I think with the trust paying out one of the highest dividends uh, in the sector at the time, we felt, and I certainly felt, along with the board, that ultimately that was unsustainable unless we could shift the portfolio more towards focusing on growth. So over the last uh, two and a half years, uh, nearly three years now, we've been uh, going through a fairly systematic process uh, of reallocating the portfolio much more towards a, a growth angle. Uh, so that's been selling out of those higher yielding, maybe more household name type companies and reallocating further down the market cap spectrum or to companies which we think can actually grow those dividends over time. So that's put a bit of a break on our earnings per share progression, although we still managed to move that ahead over the last couple of years. Uh, but what it has done is it's significantly improved the underlying uh, earnings per share and dividend per share uh, capability of the portfolio over the over the medium to long term. And I think that what that does is it gives us a sustainable dividend because at the end of the day, a high yield that's not growing has limited value in my opinion. But if we can put together a situation where we have that high yield, which we currently do, uh, something of a broad discount relative to the sector, and we can uh, demonstrate improved capital performance and also uh, convince people that we can grow the dividend, then I think that's going to be a pretty attractive combination of both a high yield today, the prospect of growth in the future and better capital returns. And that's that's really what we're looking to try and deliver. Okay. Now, Aberdeen, the asset manager, which has managed the trust for quite a few years, has recently merged with Standard Life and the equity teams have integrated. Was this um, at all anything to do with why you changed the investment process? No. So I would say very much the process itself hasn't changed. Uh, that approach of focusing on, on good quality companies, at uh, reasonable prices, uh, and trying to run relatively active portfolios, that, that philosophy hasn't changed at, at, at Aberdeen. What I would say has changed would be sort of our sort of interpretation of that in terms of how we apply that to the trust. So, and, and, that, and that sort of predates the merger with, with Standard Life as well. So, so within that, you know, clearly we can justify owning a shell or BP 
or HSBC, and we can say that those are perfectly okay companies. And they are. They're perfectly fine. Uh, but ultimately, we want to do a bit better than perfectly fine. Uh, and that's really been been around the pivot towards much more, uh, sort of say, lower down the FTSE 100, more mid-cap companies. And, and not just buying them because they're smaller, but buying them because fundamentally we think they're higher quality companies with better growth potential. And that, that strategy change sort of predates the merger with, with, with Standard Life. But the merger with Standard Life, um, while it has created in the near term, inevitably, there's some uncertainty that goes with that and, and obviously a bit of friction of new things and new IT systems and, and new people to get to know. Uh, as we sort of move into 2019, a lot of that is bedding down. Uh, all of the people decisions were made in, in early 2018. Uh, we've been getting on working together in new teams. Uh, and when we look at the resources that are available to us today, they're really quite substantial. So we now really have an industry leading uh, capability in the UK equity space. So we've got uh, something like 16 or 17 uh, analysts in that space. So that's a pretty big team covering the UK market. Uh, and then as as you know, uh, Digit also has the ability to invest overseas and we, we focus our attention there in European markets. So we've got another 17 or 18 analysts uh, covering that market. So the resources which we have available to us have, have more than doubled in in terms of the, the analysts which we have. And so for myself and Louise, as the, as the co-managers of the trust, uh, we feel that we're really in, in a good place in terms of the, the idea generation and the coverage which we have as a result of that. So undoubtedly always a little bit of friction when you go through these sort of big corporate mergers. Uh, but as I say, that's sort of settling down and now we're in the position to sort of benefit from the resources it puts in place for us. Okay. And has the portfolio overhaul been completed or have you got more work to do? Well, we set out with the ambition uh, in the autumn of 2016, um, and this was an internal target, but we wanted to move the active share of the portfolio more uh, towards 70%, uh, and we wanted to increase our exposure to mid and small cap companies to 30%, and we were coming from levels of sort of high 50s for active share uh, and, and a mid and small cap allocation that was probably in the region of sort of 15 to 20%. So when we close out the year, we'll, we'll certainly be ahead on, on both of those uh, sort of targets slash ambitions. Uh, and I think Louise and I are currently thinking about, OK, well, that's fine. You know, sort of in some ways, we, we, we certainly, I think, improved uh, the positioning of the portfolio. I think that's undoubted. And you can see that the relative performance of the trust against its peer group has significantly improved over the last three years. So, we're, you know, we, we're certainly back in the pack in terms of performance and, and if not uh, towards the top end of that pack. Uh, and that, I think that's been that's been driven by the changes which we put in place. Um, but I think we we now want to sit back and say, okay, but but that's that's fine. You know, we're back in the pack, but we don't want to be back in the pack. We want to be at the front of the pack. So what do we need to be uh, to be competitive against the very best trusts in the sector? And I think again, in a world of passive choices, um, and in a world of a lot of competition on the active side, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we're genuinely delivering a highly active proposition uh, to our. Uh, to our investors. And so I would expect to see uh, over time those allocations and active share move, move northwards again. But we, we probably won't have a sort of hard target around it. But but when I look at the best in class active UK equity funds, they probably have an active share of 80% mm. or so. Uh, and I would, I would be surprised if over time we didn't see the mid and small cap allocation move up as well. Okay, just for the sake of our listeners, active share means uh, how different you are to your benchmark. Correct. So uh, essentially, if you owned the benchmark, you'd have an active share of zero. So for every sort of percentage point that you, you deviate against it, then you, you get an additional additional percentage point. It, it of itself is not uh, a recognition of anything. But if you want to beat the benchmark, I think one of the things we could all agree about is you need to be different to it. Uh, and so being different in, in itself is not the be all and end all, but it's a good starting point. 
Okay. Now, the trust discount has been in a widening trend uh, between about 2050 and the middle of last year, but seems to be tightening. And uh, last time I looked, it was around 9%. Do you expect it to tighten further? Well, I hope it will do. I think it's actually, and if you include the sort of accounting for our, our fixed income debt, I think it's probably come in more to sort of 5 6% level now. Um, we would like it to tighten much tighter to, to par. Um, and when you think about it, we've got a portfolio of highly liquid UK equities. So I'm not particularly sure that the trust should bear a, a discount in terms of in terms of what it's got within it. Um, I think what we need to do is to convince people around the sustainability of the dividend. We need to convince people around the sustainability of investment performance. And we need to convince people around the sustainability of growth of the dividend. Now, if we can do all three of those things, then there's no reason why the trust should trade at a, at a 5 or 6% discount. And when we look at at peer trusts that are doing something very similar and, and arguably where we've actually got better performance than them over the last three years. Some of them are, are trading at premiums. Uh, so so we say there's no reason why we can't get to that. So I think what we need to do uh, is, is to continue to deliver. And if we can do that, then we'll, we'll push the trust in. Okay. Now, um, as, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you seek to generate both growth and income. So how do you achieve a balance between these? And are you more focused on one than the other? Yes, so that's that's an interesting, interesting, interesting question. So uh, the temptation, I think, is always to uh, adopt a sort of barbell approach, and I'm not necessarily sure that that's the the, the wholly right way to to go about this, uh, because ultimately there's something of an inherent contradiction, I think, between saying we want to invest in high quality companies and then owning owning high yielding business, because probably by definition, high yielding companies have probably got something that's not completely perfect with them, otherwise they wouldn't be yielding. Six, seven, eight percent, whatever it might be. So, so really, we want to ha- have much more of a sort of a holistic view. So, we will undoubtedly have some higher yielding companies, but we really want those to be those where we can actually see some growth of dividends. So, we're very unlikely to buy things just because they have a high yield. So, we're really going to be looking for higher quality businesses that that do happen to have high yields, but really uh, and focus on the ones where we do think that there is some growth, as opposed to just no dividend growth at all. Which is which is why, for example, we've preferred to own some of the mining stocks like Rio Tinto and BHP over owning some of the oil companies, where we don't really see the prospect of any dividend growth from Shell or BP over time. Uh, but when we look at the likes of uh, Rio's and BHP, given the strength of balance sheets and cash flow, we actually see that there is some prospect of high and potentially growing distributions back to shareholders. Um, but it's very much about having that sort of holistic view, high quality businesses that can grow their profits in a sustainable fashion. And if they can do that, they'll generate cash flow and they'll pay their dividends. Uh, and that, that focus on quality businesses means we should have companies that have got resilient, sustainable business models, strong balance sheets, and as a result can, can, do, the, can do the dividend growth. And what we've taken the decision uh, in, in concert with the board is that we will look to use our reserves uh, to effectively finance uh, something of a sort of earnings gap. So the board have been comfortable with us selling away high yield to buy um, sort of more growth orientated opportunities. Our financial year finishes in January. And for this year, we probably cover our dividend in earnings. But as we look into the, the year ahead and the, possibly the year after that, we probably will pay an uncovered dividend over the next couple of years. But that's for a good reason. And that's deliberate. That's because we want to be able to tilt the portfolio more towards growth and make it more sustainable over time. We've bought a lower yielding but much higher dividend growth companies. And ultimately, and hopefully what we end up in is a much better position sort of two or three years down the line. You recently said you've seen an increasing number of opportunities among smaller, more growth oriented companies. Um, what kind of companies are these? Well, I think what was interesting in the, in the sort of last quarter of the year was we did see something of a rotation out of some of the higher higher growth names in the market. And we saw a bit of a derating on, on valuation. So we'd been 
taking uh, positions in companies like Abcam, uh, which makes antibodies for for research. Uh, companies like Genus, which basically uh, uh, help uh, the breeding of, of cows and and and, and pigs. Uh, through uh, looking at companies like Decra Pharmaceuticals, which is a, a, a veterinary uh, a pharmaceutical business. These are quite highly rated companies, but they all have very attractive long-term growth potential, all have very strong balance sheets, and all have quite low yields today, but will be growing their dividends at good, healthy double-digit rates. Now, those companies all saw quite big sell-offs in the last quarter of last year, and that's been a good opportunity for us to step in and, and significantly increase our positions in those types of businesses. And then in more recent months, uh, we've been looking to buy uh, holdings in companies like Rentacle, companies like Rightmove, um, again, companies which are trading on relatively high multiples, but where we see high-quality business models, sustainable growth, and dividends that are coming from a low base, but where we see you know quite attractive growth rates. And so those would be some of the names that we've been looking to build. And I think not necessarily the kind of companies which you typically find in a sort of income growth portfolio, but which we certainly feel is a tick the box in terms of income growth and, and capital growth. Okay. Now, last year, you also added a house building stock, countryside properties, and Marshalls, which manufactures landscaping products such as paving stones and street furniture. Now, if the UK comes under economic pressure in the near future, as might be possible, um, aren't consumers and companies less likely to spend money on, on these kind of things? Yes, quite possibly. Um, I think there is a couple of things to think about. So first of all, we have to think around the overall portfolio. So we, and it's been well documented, you know, the UK market has about 70% of its revenues that come from outside of the UK. So so it has been quite sensitive to, to, to currency. And, and actually, ironically enough, as, as you know, Lenore, when, when when sterling does badly, the equity markets do well, right? So well, mm-hmm. we're a fairly well-rehearsed thing. For us, we did particularly well as a result of Brexit. That was quite helpful for us. We have always traditionally had a lot of overseas exposure and being quite cautious on domestic economic plays, precisely because we've thought that the prospects aren't particularly attractive. And that predates Brexit, actually. You know, we've always tended to prefer companies with an international angle because it, we think it gives them more opportunity uh, to grow. Um, but when we look at our portfolio, we do see we're still sort of quite biased towards that overseas exposure. And and I think what we would all agree with Brexit, if we can agree one thing, is that we don't know what's going to happen. So in a situ- unknown unknown. In a, yes. a, a known unknown. Yeah. And I think in a situation, mm. if you don't know what's going to happen, it seems somewhat foolish to take a very strong view as to what is going to happen. And so I think one can see that as us essentially looking to sort of hedge ourselves a little bit. Now, we think that Countryside is a pretty good business uh, and it has a particularly attractive business where it basically makes houses uh, for, 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 for housing associations, which makes a much more steady and stable business alongside its more, its more sort of consumer retail focused business, has net cash balance sheet um, and is trading on a PE of about six times. So we would say that gives us a, some decent margin of error if we, if we don't get that right. Uh, and it's got about a 4% dividend yield and plenty of potential to pay out higher dividends down the line. And Marshalls is a really interesting little company. Makes you know, Again, if I told you we invested in a company that makes concrete blocks, you'd probably sit there and think, well, it doesn't really sound like a high-quality company, Ben. Um, but again, a business within its sector that makes good mid-teens margins. It's a leader in its field. Um, and again, it sort of benefits from being the leader in a fairly consolidated marketplace. It buys up uh, its smaller smaller competition. And while it's UK-focused, it's actually sort of benefiting from investment in infrastructure and, and sort of larger commercial projects. So, you know, Marshalls actually came out and upgraded its guidance, you know, last month, I think it was. So, you know, business for them is doing okay. It's got a strong balance sheet and a nice niche little company. So, um, you know, we do have found it difficult to find high-quality, purely domestic-focused businesses. But where we can find things that we think are good, we will we will invest in them. 
Okay. Now you mentioned、um, you you quite like companies to have international exposure. So roughly, how much of the fund is in international companies listed in the UK, and roughly how much of the fund is in overseas listed companies? So we would probably think overall, and it's always a bit of an estimate because you never、mm-hmm. get the sort of perfect statistics. But we probably think about seventy five percent of the revenues within the portfolio. Come for the, the revenues of our companies within the portfolio come from overseas, so、okay. more than the market overall.、Mm. Um, and within the portfolio, we have just under twenty percent invested in overseas listed companies, and and those those are, those are invested in 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 listed in, in the Euro, in European markets. And that's the reason for investing in Europe is because that's where Louise and myself's expertise is. So we we could invest anywhere in the world,、uh, but again, we think it's a good idea to invest in what we know as a sort of basic starting point for these things. And and as we've spent many years covering European markets as well as UK markets, we think that that's a a useful adjunct for us. And Europe provides enough opportunity、uh, for us to more than find things that that would be attractive. So, so we probably still have that sort of overseas skew, but we think overall that's quite positive. With a with a longer term view, we would think that global GDP is a more interesting place to be than 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 UK GDP,、uh, and that also that the kind of companies that do have that more international exposure just have more runway for growth. That's not to say that we won't invest in domestic companies if we see attractive. Structural opportunities, but those are probably going to be less frequent than than the sort of broader, more international based businesses. Okay. Now, your largest sector exposure is、uh, financials, which is obviously quite a broad sector. So, what kind of financials do you like, and why? Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting one that one because I would say probably if you ask me about any individual chunk of financials, I'd probably sit there and give them. I'm not so sure about that, particularly banks, where we've generally been pretty cautious for for a long time、uh, on, on that area. But what we have is quite an interesting eclectic selection of different businesses in that area. So we've got some asset managers. So we've got Ashmore, which is a really good niche emerging markets focus play. It's been out of favour for the last three or four years with emerging markets being in the doldrums, but they generate great. Perform- Performance on their funds. I probably shouldn't say that, should I? But you know, great, generate great performance on their funds. They've got a very niche,、uh, strong position. They've got a, an owner,、uh, owner, 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 leader in the company. They've got a great balance sheet,、um, and they pay out a pretty generous dividend. And over time, hopefully, that's going to grow. Another one that's difficult for me to mention is Schroders,、uh, but again, you know, it's a very well-run company.、Uh, they've done pretty well、uh, over the years, and I think even though active management is facing more challenges, I think they're still well positioned to do quite well. They've got a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet, and they pay out, you know, especially the non-voting shares which we own. Which trade at a discount to the ordinary ones, you've got a yield of about five percent on those. So that's quite interesting. Got a, a, a selection of companies are in, in the real estate sector.、Um, so again, quite an interesting balance there. But things like Assura, which is one of our biggest holdings, which is a, effectively owns GP surgeries in the UK, yields just under five percent. But、uh, again, effectively, you've got government, effectively a government bond, really、um, not that leveraged.、Um, you've got inflation. You've got them buying more GP surgeries,、um, and you've got a little bit of rental growth as well. So that's quite attractive. We think never going to. Blow the lights out, but you might get double-digit return out of that, and we think that's pretty secure. And then we might have something like Big Yellow in the portfolio, which again, in terms of the storage, sort of a proxy for some degree for the housing market. But again, there are strong trends behind people looking to use storage more. They've got a great network of, of assets in, the, in, in London, which are quite difficult to replicate. And then in places like insurance, we've got. Prudential, where we like the long-term Asian growth story, I don't think we're the only managers that have noticed that.、Um, but then we've also got a pretty big holding in something like Chesnara, which is a smaller company、uh, which basically buys closed books of life business and, and runs them for cash. But they've also got a business in Holland,、uh, which is also potentially not only consolidating the market but, but growing. So that's also interesting. Banks is probably the one where we've got a pretty big underweight, so we only have one holding there. Uh, which is、uh, standard chartered.、Mm. Um, we don't own HSBC. We don't own Lloyd's. Don't own RBS.、Uh, 
generally find banks pretty opaque and tough to tough to love. Uh, Standard Charter we like because we think the valuation is cheap, so about 0.6 times book. And we think out of all the banks in the UK, it's the one that actually has some genuine growth over the medium to long term, although the company has done its best to demonstrate that's not the case in the last two or three years. But we do think with a longer term view that that's what, quite well positioned. And the dividends coming from a low base, and you remember they cut it in 2015. So we should see some some decent growth coming out of that as well. Okay. Now, what would you say the main risks to the types of company um, needing income growth invests in? Well, I think that there was always the, the opportunity for sort of some stock-specific elements. And when we look within the portfolio, there are some businesses that do face some challenges, that's for sure. And we do focus on that a lot. So a couple of companies that come to mind would be uh, certainly our larger, bigger cap stocks. So something like British American Tobacco, which is a decent size holding for us, has had a terrible last 18 months. Uh, that's really been to a couple of reasons. Uh, firstly, the FDA has really changed its focus on regulating the US tobacco market, which is a huge market for BAT. Uh, and and it, it may well ban certain types of cigarettes, which make up a substantial amount of their profits. Uh, and they've also gone into this situation with a, probably a more debt than they would have liked having bought out the, the, the minorities in Reynolds or the majorities in Reynolds back in 2016-17. So that's put that into a bit of a difficult situation. Now, we think the dividend from here is sustainable and actually will probably continue to grow and, and tobacco remains a resilient business. Um, but it's certainly something which we're keeping a close eye on. Um, and then something like Vodafone would be another question where you know the business undoubtedly does face some some tricky challenges. We've got a new CEO. Uh, we've got a new deal in Germany coming through. Um, but again, one that we watch and, and focus on. Now, we've typically preferred to own things like BAT and Vodafone because we think there is some growth or has been historically. Vodafone have now said, well, we're not really going to grow our dividend. Um, but we still think BAT probably will do. So on the stock-specific level, those are probably the two that I – spend my most of my time worrying about it, from a sectoral sort of factor base i think currency is probably the big risk to be honest i mean we are still quite short the uk so if sterling does well that's going to be a, bit of a hindrance for us and you can probably see that if you look at the performance of digit against the benchmark in the last month it's been quite okay if you look at us against some of our peers who've got more mid-cappy domestic exposure but we've we've lagged those those ones so so i think that's something that I, we do spend quite a bit of time uh, thinking about as well. Hence the comments earlier around countryside and marshals and things like that. Yeah, okay. Now, on the subject of risk, um, Dunedin Income Growth appears to have a higher level of debt known as gearing than many UK equity income investment trusts. What, why is this? It's 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 a bit of a legacy thing and it's, and it's a bit, it's not really the case. Uh, so essentially, uh, we have um, three forms of debt currently. We have uh, a revolving bank facility for about 12 million uh, pounds um, uh, and then we have two fixed rate instruments now many years ago i think it was in the late uh, 80s um, possibly in the early 90s it was just uh, decided by the board then that it was a good idea to issue a bond with an eight percent coupon and i'm sure at some point someone told them that equity is going to yield more than that over the long run but that hasn't happened since they did that um, nonetheless we've got this very expensive debt and that actually expires in april and about three years ago, uh, we were looking at whether or not it would make sense to, to basically buy out that debt. Um, it, when we did the analysis, we, we didn't think it made sense at the time. But interest rates were very low, and we thought it made sense to try and capture that. So what we did was we issued another fixed rate bond, 
yielding just under four percent for 30 years and we thought that was a good t- good rate at the time now if we'd done it 12 months later it would have been even cheaper but still i think to to, to basically issue issue long-term fixed rate debt for 30 years at half the long-term rate of return on equity seems much more sensible than issuing it above the long-term rate of return on equities but anyway that's a, a side point but essentially what we did with that we didn't want to be more leveraged in the market so what we did was we took the money from the bond issue and put it into a portfolio of corporate bonds that matches the debenture that's expiring in april this year so when you would look at our gearing on a total basis yes it's a bit higher than than, than our peers but actually a good chunk of that is actually netted off by owning some bonds which match that portfolio so we're not equity geared we're sort of overall gearing those bonds will be uh, sold off over uh, the next sort of three to four months uh, and it's and then we'll repay the debenture when it expires in in in, uh, in in april so one of the good things about 2019 is we should have a much simpler balance sheet um, so we'll have two just two forms of gearing we'll have our 30-year fixed rate debt four percent and we'll have our flexible uh, bank facilities we won't have the bond portfolio and the overall leverage the equity leverage won't change but the overall leverage will change and i think perception for the trust is uh, because people have to do a bit of digging to see that they think that it's more leveraged than our competitors when it when it isn't really uh, and, and also when they look at the balance sheet they think well actually there's a bit complicated so I think one of the good things about this year is we're going to simplify the balance sheet and reduce the headline gearing. And I think that should also help when it comes to the discount. Thank you, Ben. A really interesting update on Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust and UK equity opportunities. When market turbulence is likely, as could well be the case this year, some investors sell assets they consider to be more at risk and reallocate to cash. But others argue that time in the market rather than timing the market, is what reaps long-term rewards. Taha, you've been looking at the pros and cons of moving into cash to try and mitigate volatility. So first of all, what are the arguments in favour of doing this? Uh, highly not. Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose it's kind of uh, the obvious points that you just mentioned. Um, it seems if you if you expect markets to be volatile, which again, which we can't predict but can expect this year, you, you think, is it worth the risk? You know, you, you, you everyone has their own risk tolerance and... If you expect something to go down, it kind of seems very logical to to stay within that asset class. Um, so, you know, taking taking risk out of your portfolio, cash is always going to be king. It's never going to lose you money. Um, if you if you imagine yourself as having, you know, a risk budget, for example, is how much risk you can tolerate. Then if markets are volatile and the risk that risk increases, you have to just remove some of that out and take, take some time to cash. And... Um, we actually did a bit of modelling. Um, if you if you uh, go to the feature of the magazine on the website, um, so I ran two portfolios against each other. One portfolio is a portfolio of sixty percent equities and forty percent bonds, and the second portfolio um, is forty percent in bonds, forty percent in equities, and twenty percent in cash. Now, if you look at the last biggest bear market we had, which is two thousand and eight, so this ran from the third of September two thousand eight to the ninth of March two thousand and nine, uh, where global equities fell thirty seven percent. So the first portfolio, uh, because of its allocation to bonds, only fell 5%. Um, but if you had taken uh, money out and put it into cash, you would have actually made 0.5%. So you, know, you can just see the clear scenario where taking time out of vol- taking more time out of a volatile market, putting it into cash, sitting tight, has an absolute clear benefit for your overall return. Okay. Now, what are the arguments against moving into cash to mitigate volatility? I suppose the first one is that no one in their right mind would have taken cash out on the 3rd of September 2008 and put it back in on the 9th of March 2009. Uh, it's absolutely impossible to time the market. Um, I can do this in the benefit of hindsight and using pretty charts, but at the time, it's, it's, it, no, no, one, no one did this. Um, it's, if they did, well done. Um, you deserve more than you have got. Possibly psychic. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. this, this is... Yeah. 
the idea of actually, and the problem isn't taking time out. Like you can take time out on the 3rd of September, the 5th of September, the 10th of September. The problem actually is going back in is because you are you're trying to catch that little flick at the bottom of a chart where it stops going down and starts going up. Now that is you know, that is trying you know, this is known as trying to catch a falling knife, which you, you can't. No one should ever try doing unless you want to hurt yourself. Um, and so that this is the main issue is that you're going to miss the bull run. You know, at the bottom of every bear market is a very good bull run. So, um, kind of looking at this, I, I have the, the two portfolios, the same portfolio, sixty forty and uh, forty forty twenty, and I delayed it by six weeks. So, assuming that you know you are six weeks late to selling out of a bear market and six weeks late buying into a bull market. Now, at this time, so global equities made three point six percent. Portfolio one, which is which has no cash but sixty forty, made fourteen point five percent. But th- when you added cash, you only made thirteen point three percent. So what that shows is that you, know, you had a cash drag because you missed the the start of the bull market, which is you know the most financially rewarding time of any of any type of domestic. Okay. Now, why can moving into cash be particularly problematic for investors running portfolios of funds? So it's, it's very important that it, in the in the fund sense uh, because. And I'm, and I'm sure Ben will agree that sometimes each fund manager, that, when they're dealing with their own market and starts coming up against times of volatility, will also rely on cash to help reduce the volatility in their portfolio. Um, so what you might have is if you start taking profits and selling cash from your funds, but your fund manager is doing the same thing, you're actually doubling up the amount of cash that you might have. Uh, so before you even think about taking risk out of your own portfolio, you need to see what the underlying uh, funds you have in your portfolio are doing because otherwise you'd be taking too much risk off the table and therefore you know you might be in the wrong place because fund managers as good as they are Ben also find it difficult to try the market I'm sure. Do you want to chip in? <laughs> yes I mean I, I think I think my, my sort of personal view would be I wouldn't try and time the market and I think for the, the long-term benefit of compounding your money in investments is, is is more valuable than trying to trying to time things by shifting into cash or or not and, and for those who have those skills Great. I no, I don't, um, and there are very few people who do. So I think you, you know you're much more likely to sort of you might get one of those trades right. You might get into cash before the market falls, but will you will you get back into equities at the right moment? Pro- probably not. Yeah, um, and that then that's the risk. No, indeed, and it's quite uh, quite an important point at this moment in time. So um, just looking at Morningstar, the the average U.S. equity fund at the moment has three point one percent in cash, and the average U.K. fund has two point six percent in cash. So again, if you're thinking about, oh, I'm going to sell out of U.S. equities and hold cash because it's going to be volatile, you, your funds have already done this. There's one other little anecdote, if I may, just jump in. If you bought, uh, I think U.S. equities the day before Lehman Brothers went bust, yeah, I think you got your money back within a year, and then went on to benefit from one of the biggest bull markets in history. So, so what might look pretty dreadful in the short term can actually work out quite okay for you, even if you do things that appear to be quite stupid at the time. Okay. Now, um, in view of the difficulty of time of the market, um, what could be an alternative to um, moving into cash when you're a bit jumpy? Um, yeah, so absolutely carry on the same mantra of uh, a market you, you feel if you've made the right returns and you, you expect a drawdown coming up. So you sell your profits, but it's, you don't have to go into cash. You can, you can buy value. Um, so you're, you're relying on diversification. So you're, you're, you're you're selling out of a top market and then you're buying into a market that you think is undervalued. Uh, some people I spoke to um, have made the example of selling out of the US, moving into emerging markets in Asia, where they think that that bear, that bear market there has, has seen its time. So you're more likely to see the, the kind of flick bull market that I talked about earlier than you are in the US. Okay, thank you, Taha. Some really important things to think about before attempting to time the market.
That's all we've got time for today, but you can read Taha's full report on using cash to mitigate volatility, managing your asset allocation and UK equity income in this week's Investors Chronicle of a website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.